It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Stuart Brand is many things, a writer, biologist, environmentalist, and tech visionary. His latest focus, de-extinction or rewilding the world. With an organization he co-founded called Revive and Restore, he and his team are using new techniques of genetic rescue for endangered and extinct species. There are some species that are they're no longer in the wild. They're basically in captive breeding or they're, uh, uh, they're completely gone like extinct species. And they've left a real gap behind them. And to refill those gaps will re-enrich uh, the whole conservation world. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. The cold and tundra-dwelling woolly mammoth died off 4,000 years ago thanks to climate change and human hunters. Now, Revive and Restore is working to bring the animal back to life, or at least revive a proxy species with similar traits. It's possible because the Asian elephant, a close relative, is still alive, says Stuart Brand. The hope is that projects, like the woolly mammoth restoration, will enhance genetic diversity and help animals build disease resistance and adapt to a changing climate. Stewart's Revive and Restore is promoting incorporating these genetic tools into standard conservation practices around the globe. He spoke with Flora Lichtman about the project. She's the host of the Gimlet Media podcast, Every Little Thing. Their conversation was held June 29, 2018. Here's Lichtman. So right now, Stuart and a team of other people are working on de-extinction. How many people in here have heard that term? Very savvy audience. So, Stuart, tell me about your goal with Revive and Restore. My goal? Your goal. Revive and Restore has that name because the idea is to use biotechnology, specific genetic technology, to bring a whole new toolkit to conservation, uh, not only in terms of extinct species, but species that um, have other reasons to need some genetic help in their situation to uh, basically increasingly rewild the world that we're in. Uh, De-extinction looks like it's looking backwards, but it's really looking forward to a much richer body of life going on on Earth, a much more abundant body of life going on on Earth. And um, there are some species that are, that are no longer in the wild. They're basically in captive breeding or they're, uh, uh, they're completely gone like extinct species. And they've left a real gap behind them. And to refill those gaps will re-enrich uh, the whole conservation world. And uh, because these new technologies are now, just now coming available very, very rapidly, um, it's a really interesting time for conservation anyway. But having a whole new toolkit to make conservation amazing for this century is what we're shooting for. And when you talk about new tools, are we talking about CRISPR mostly? Uh, CRISPR is a gene editing tool. It just came available actually after we started this process of uh, trying to see if it would be possible to, to do things for extinct species like the mammoth, like the passenger pigeon, like the great auk, like even things like stellar sea cow or the dodo or others that come to mind. The stellar sea cow, by the way, is a Bering Strait, gigantic marine mammal. I actually looked up the size today. Uh, stellar sea cow have their own sort of fan club. And the reason is they're one of these big animals. People love big animals. And the stellar sea cow was this ocean-going creature that was uh, 10 tons, 30 feet long, uh, a big animal. Related to the manatees, so there's a possibility of bringing them back. And I can get into the details of that, which you can see some um, workarounds that need to be developed there in terms of getting a large animal out of a small animal. <laughs> Actually, I would like to talk, let's talk about the details of how this would work. Let's take, we will get to the woolly mammoth, but let's take the stellar sea cow, for example. What if would it's you all do? right, I want to start with the mammoth. We'll okay. come back to the okay. mammoth in other terms, mammoth in, in the world, but the mammoth in the lab. Um, all of this really starts for me and for Revive and Restore with a person who's, I think, been here a number of times, George Church at Harvard, who is pretty much the from our standpoint, the leading genetic engineer in the world. He was involved in the Human Genome Project at the very beginning. He's on the 
board of about 10 or 20 companies that are based on innovations that have come out of his lab. And um, also at Harvard uh, is David Reich, who's been studying the genome of the woolly mammoth. And because they were in the far north, they went into the ice, their genomes are particularly intact, not totally intact, or you could just clone them. That's never going to happen, even though there's a Korean team that thinks they might. Um, but the, the genomes are in good enough shape that it's relatively easy to uh, get a very good uh, detailed sense of what was in their genome and then compare it with their closest living relative, which was not the African elephants that we saw in the session before this, but the Asian elephants. Uh, really, really closely related. So you compare the two and start to see what are the differences. And uh, we know enough about mammalian genomes now to be able to tease out where certain traits hang out. And what happened at Harvard is that George Church and Reich and others figured out that they could, thanks to using CRISPR, they could identify and then edit into living elephant, Asian elephant cell lines to sort of see if they would you know, work there. Uh, genes that affect the traits that you care about. Long woolly hair. Basically, the traits they first care about is what would make an Asian elephant comfortable in the far north, uh, which is you know, what made the woolly mammoths comfortable there. Long woolly hair, subcutaneous fat, relative insensitivity to temperature, and blood that is uh, capable of moving out to uh, the edges of a very large animal in a very cold situation. They identified those 16 genes. Uh, they're up to 23 genes now affecting a bunch of different traits. They have edited, using CRISPR, those genes into the living elephant cell lines where they function. So you're already in the path of being able to develop a quasi-woolly mammoth embryo thanks to this technique. And any of these extinct things require a surrogate species which is relatively close. Um, by the way, dinosaurs are off the board. There's no, last of them died 66 million years ago. You cannot clone from stone, as they say. Uh, there's no DNA left to work with unless you want to try to rebuild them from birds or something, which is one scheme like that we're not involved in. Um, but most of the animals you care about, uh, there is this closely related animal. You use them as a platform, as a scaffold, both for understanding uh, the material in the ancient genome and then potentially using the uh, living species as the parent, basically, for the extinct species. So is the end result a woolly mammoth or like a hybrid of woolly mammoth and elephant? I'd say it's a kind of a very, very directed hybrid. Hybridization in nature is happening all the time. It's one of the things we've been learning from conservation biologists, field biologists, is that everything hybridizes all the time. And it's one of the major engines of speciation in the world that Darwin actually was somewhat hip to. And uh, as a consequence, it's one of the ways to realize that these de-extincted species will not be that different from what happens in nature all the time anyway. But yeah, the, uh, the initial woolly mammoths at least will be mostly be going in the direction of making them cold adapted so they can live in the far north. Uh, the amazing curly tusks might come later because it's not so essential living in the north. All of these things will go by stages. And, and it's one of the great things with working with genomes is you can work sort of a trait at a time and blend them in, iterate, uh, take it incrementally, see how they're working in nature, what do they still need, add that. And this is pretty much how conservation works anyway. It's a long, slow, uh, amazing process, both in terms of its astonishing to see, and you're, you know, you're working with astonishing animals. What's the biggest challenge to making this a reality? Uh, there's a number of scientific challenges that need to be dealt with, just to stick with mammals for a minute, because mammals and birds and invertebrates are different. Um, with the woolly mammoth, you could use an Asian elephant, a female Asian elephant, as the mother. And as you do with mammals, or as we, as we do with in vitro fertilization for humans, which is also done a lot with, with animals, by the way, domestic animals. Uh, you can implant a, an embryo that started to grow. It's an edited embryo or an embryo with edited cells. Mammalian childbirth, as everybody here knows, is tough. It's chancy. 
It's chancier uh, when there's a little bit of cross-species element to it. And Asian elephants are endangered anyway. Um, so we don't really want to move ahead with that particular animal until another of George's uh, projects is worked out, which is uh, artificial uteruses. And artificial uteruses are basically incubators that go all the way back. It's now been developed pretty far along for mice. Obviously, you've got to scale it up quite a bit to get to a woolly mammoth or a stellar sea cow. But it starts to get you free of several things. One of it, it frees you from endangering uh, female Asian elephants. It also gives you the ability to bring back just sort of one mammoth at a time. But once you've got the process, process really going, what you want back is herds of elephants, herds of woolly mammoths. Uh, in the Ambicelli, in this wonderful Phyllis Lee presentation we had just before this one, she said that they've seen convocations of elephants in Africa of a thousand elephants strong. They love to congregate sometimes, just hang out. And you can imagine the, the northern steppes of, the, of this continent of Eurasia, as the, woolly, as the mammoth steppe comes back, the grasslands get rebuilt by the grazers up there. Thousands of these creatures moving across the landscape. That's actually my personal vision. We're kind of, we can go backwards from that to how do you get to that with all these various species. I want the big animals back. The elephants were here. The elephants were in Latin America. The elephants were everywhere in the world except Antarctica. There used to be a dozen species of elephants. Now there's just three, the African elephant, the forest elephant in Africa, and the Asian elephant. Uh, if we're successful, there'll be four. And then we can move on to the Colombian mammoth who used to live in these parts. Let's say you could, do, you could get the, the genetics to work. Mm -hmm. You could implant the genes using CRISPR. You could get this artificial womb mm -hmm. big enough sized. You make one. Who's going to teach that woolly mammoth to be a woolly mammoth? Uh, the uh, Asian elephant uh, mother, probably, since they're so matriarchal, and her sisters, which is what we just learned, is typically it takes a village to raise. It's actually a cousinhood to raise a, uh, a young elephant. And um, I think it's likely that even though hairy, this is going to look and feel and smell and act to them like an, an, a young Asian elephant. And they'll go, okay, he's a little weird, but uh, he or she is uh, welcome to the tribe, and they'll bring him up as an Asian elephant. Okay, so why, why do this? Why, why the woolly mammoth? Why, why, why? Across the board, I mean, the thing to understand is that mammoths are a subset of restoration generally. One of the things conservation biologists love to do is bring a species back to a domain where they've been gone for a long time. Uh, the, sort of the standard story these days is, wow, they brought wolves back, after, back to the Yellowstone after being gone for 100 years. And it was an enriching story. So they chased the elk out of the rivers, and then the trees grew back, and then the beavers came in, and they made ponds, and everything got richer thanks to bringing back this apex predator. Well, just the beavers alone, beavers were gone from Sweden and from Scotland for 400 years. And bringing European beavers back to Sweden and back to Scotland in the last 30 and 40 years has enriched the landscape there. So this is the kind of thing, typically, when you're really focusing on a species, you want to be interested in what's called an ecosystem engineer. Uh, and by the way, mammoths count as an ecosystem engineer. Besides grazing with their trunks, they knock down trees. And that's what keeps Africa in the savanna and in the, into the forest areas, like in the Ambicelli, so patchy. And a patchwork mosaic landscape is what... Uh, Biodiversity goes best in and bioabundance abundance goes best in. So you're always looking for how does the animal you're interested in fit into this whole rewilding, restoration domain that conservation biologists have done for a long time. How does it fit into their concern, which is bringing back basically self-managing ecosystems that are highly resilient, and they may not be now, and that's why um, conservation biologists are working on them. And then for us, it's a subset of the whole domain of what you can do with genetics for conservation. And there's you know, five or six other areas besides the extinction that are applying right now. So mammoths are always the mammoth in the room. Um, and we love them and I adore them. And one of the reasons I adore them 
is it's even slower and longer and bigger than most conservation projects. They're all kind of slow. We're working with black-footed ferrets that are about yay big. Uh, they are uh, living. There's thousands of them, but they got some problems with inbreeding that we can help with. They got some problems with an exotic disease called sylvatic plague that is killing them in the, in the wet summers out here in the shortgrass prairie. And we can help with that, we think. So um, it's full-scale range of stuff uh, that just keeps expanding. That's part of the fun of working in this. Is part of the fun that it's controversial? I know you don't shy from controversy. Oh, the controversy part. Uh, okay, a common one is, and it, it goes with anything genetic. You're messing with nature. And this came up back when it was in vitro fertilization for humans. Uh, how reproduction happens is God's work. And uh, if you mess with it, you're, uh, you're, you're playing God and you shouldn't do that. And besides, there's obviously going to be something wrong with the babies and there's something wrong from, with the parents for even wanting such a thing. An audience this size, <clears throat> I dare say, there's a number of people who are either themselves in vitro babies or are the parents of or members of a family that has uh, been able to uh, have progeny because of in vitro. So there was a process of resistance, and then as soon as people met the beautiful babies and the ecstatic parents, they got over that one. But nevertheless, anything messing with reproductive processes and the genetics that gets carried out in there, people get nervous about. And then in the course of time, uh, it goes from uh, don't even think about it to think about it but don't do it to don't do it to, well, somebody did it. To uh, and that was must be terrible, but oh, it's not terrible. To, to you know, not much longer after that. Uh, how come you're not doing it? <laughs> you know, I've heard two other, and just in reading in preparation for this interview, I've heard two other arguments against, and I'm really curious about oh. how what your thoughts are on. So one was that it can't bringing species back can't be a replacement. Mm -hmm. It'll never be the same mm -hmm. as it was. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Um, the fundamental truth of nature is nothing's ever the same. So there's no back to go. Well, there is a back, but you can't get there. Um, in fact, I'll recommend a book to you called Inheritors of the Earth by an um, ecologist and evolutionary biologist named Chris Thomas in England. Uh, the subtitle is How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction. And he's basically pointing out that one of the impacts, one of the many impacts that humans have had on life on Earth is that we have accelerated the rate of, the rate of evolution. Lots of creatures, plants and animals and bugs and microbes and everybody else is going, whoa, uh, here comes some weirdness in, you know, the apex predators went away. What do we do now? Well, evolution doesn't hesitate for a second or whatever. It just starts evolving around. And that is going on in a vast and productive way. And hybridization is part of it. Uh, we've been, he refers to, you know, once upon a time there was Pangaea. There was this one continent where everything could essentially breed with everything else. And then they separate into various continents. Well, now with humans flying around, carrying things advertently and inadvertently from one place to another, we're back to a Pangaea situation where creatures that have been separated from one another forever are now encountering and working out, negotiating how they're going to deal with each other ecologically, deciding if they can breed, can they, uh, where do the hybrids fit in, and, 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 and. So there's a seething going on in nature. Like there's a common idea that nature is very fragile or somehow broken. It is the opposite of the case. Nature, one, is not fragile, two, is not broken. Three is doing, it's up to all kinds of stuff, which is fantastic because then all the conservation biologist has to do is learn those dynamics and blend in with them. So everything's about blending in. Up till now, nature's been blending in with us. I think our project in this century is to finish learning how to blend in with nature. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, people, people will say, conservationists will say, that if we do projects like this, very flashy de-extinction projects, that it will divert funds from saving other endangered species or other environmental efforts. What do you think about that? Um, it's always a valid thing to raise because there's not enough money for conservation. And if this takes money away from 
conservation in some sense, that would be a worry. I've actually seen an editorial saying that, well, if people get interested in woolly mammoths, they'll give up on African elephants. I have to imagine what universe it would be the case that somebody who's interested in mammoths now would be uninterested in African elephants who are insanely interesting. Um, so there's some false notions, I think, that you know, sort of uh, simple little screwy narratives that people tell. But it is absolutely the case that uh, money is always an issue in these things. I would give the example of California condors. They almost went extinct. They were down, and this is the biggest bird, bigger wingspan than me, uh, the biggest bird in North America. Uh, they were down to, I think, 26 left in the wild. And a number of people were saying, well, don't take them into captive breeding. They hate it in prison. Uh, let them die with dignity. Unfortunately, the Sierra Club and Friends of the Earth in California took this position. Um, against that advice, they were taken into captive breeding at San Diego Zoo and at Los Angeles Zoo. They worked very well in captive breeding. There are now over 400 of them back in the world. Uh, they're doing fine in the wild. They are now starting to uh, create babies in the wild. You can see there's cams, of course, you know, watching them grow up. And anybody who's seen a California condor in the wild, there's some around the Grand Canyon. They're up and down the California coast. Uh, Oregon and Washington are wanting them back there. They used to range the entire west. Once you've seen one of these creatures cruising overhead, and they kind of like people, so they'll come around and see if you've got any hot dogs for them. They're astonishing. And you say, you know, it costs well over $30 million to bring these animals back. And the answer is, it's worth so much more than that. Uh, and did it take away from other conservation efforts in California or in the West Coast? And the answer is not a whit. Basically, an exciting new idea draws in exciting new funders, excited new funders. And what you're doing is not taking a part of the pie that belongs to somebody else. You're making it a bigger pie. Is that true for Revive and Restore? It's what we're seeing pretty much because, and we've been careful on this, we're trying not to take money from uh, traditional conservation sources. Hmm. Uh, for this so reason? I'm, I'm sorry? For this reason? Uh, partly for this reason and partly because, frankly, there's, there's money in biotech people who are already interested in this. There's money in digital tech people who are, there's a lot of relatively wealthy, relatively young. Uh, people are kind of looking around. How do they want to do philanthropy? They want to reinvent it in their own terms, which is the right thing to do. And uh, this looks new and exciting. And so you know, they plug in. So I think we're bringing new money into conservation. And with that money comes new, very interesting and interested people who then they start to branch out. Uh, so hopefully this is one of the methods by which the whole world of conservation biology and its funding can grow. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. The world's oceans are largely unexplored even though they cover 70% of the Earth's surface. We know more about the surface of Mars than the oceans. Most of these waters are unregulated, unprotected, and under threat. Sylvia Earle co-chairs the Aspen High Seas Initiative. Her goal is to defend this part of the world. We've neglected the ocean. We've invested in technology to go into space, and it's paid off handsomely. We've neglected the ocean, and it's, it's really costing us dearly. Hear more from Earl in our sister podcast, Aspen Insight. She talks about how the Aspen Institute is preserving vulnerable waters. Find the episode by searching Aspen Insight in your favorite podcast player. Let's get back to today's conversation. Here's Flora Lichtman. Can you describe your vision for the mammoth step? Like, paint me a picture of what you want it to look like. Next month, well, this last session was... Uh, run by, uh, moderated by Ross Anderson. Ross Anderson did a beautiful piece, cover story in the Atlantic, a little over a year ago, uh, called Pleistocene Park. And it was about a project in northern Siberia that I'm going to, uh, with the film guys that are here, and uh, to visit a project started some 30 years ago by a, a Russian scientist named Sergei Zimov. 
We got him involved in this de-extinction thing right in the beginning. And he became subsequently interested in mammoths. The deal there is, at Pleistocene Park, they now have 25 square miles of former tundra and boreal forest that is grassland because they brought in grazers. The deal is, grass makes grazers and grazers make grass. That's how it works. And uh, they brought in the kind of density of grazers on the land. These are cold-adapted animals like the muskox, Yakutian horse, these beautiful kind of long, woolly horses, uh, bison they're just bringing in from Alaska and so on. Put them in the density they used to be across the mammoth steppe of the old days. It was the world's largest biome. And when they're in that density they used to be, they turn the tundra, which is releasing greenhouse gases, back into grass, which uh, fixes carbon. And also, uh, through the relationship they have with snow trampling it in the winter, uh, the cold gets down into the permafrost longer and keeps it more perma, which is also good for climate. Um, issues turn up like they want to knock down the boreal forest, and Sergei uses old military tanks that came with the site that they have, and he says, I'd rather have mammoths because they make dung. And moving around nutrients is one of the things that the large animals used to do all over the world before we killed off most of the megafauna. That process of basically recreating the mammoth step will take lots more than a century, but uh, humanity has been around for 10,000 years as a civilization and should be around for at least 10,000 more. So most, you know, at least half of that period, we should have the mammoth step back. How much do you think the movie Jurassic Park has done for your efforts? Uh, the first half is the, is the part that I would refer to because you'll recall the scientists can't believe you can bring back the dinosaurs and they're right. <laughs> uh, but then anyway, there's the dinosaurs that are brought back and the affection and the, and, and the just wonder that they feel for these creatures back. And, and there's a, a, it was really presented as there they are in the landscape fitting and dealing with one another and feeding and all this stuff. And, and the Laura Dern character cares, cares for this one rhinoceros-like creature that's you know, in trouble and she's caring for it. All of that is dead on. And then the Jeffrey Goldberg part where he's sort of, oh, be careful, life finds a way. Um, that was a good that's impression. the best line in there, life finds a way. So people say, oh, my God, all these animals going to you know, function back out there. My God. Well, they've been there for millions of years. They've been absent for you know, a few centuries. And if anybody knows how to prosper in that landscape, it's them. life finds a way. It'll be a hybrid. It won't be a perfect mammoth yet, though it may be eventually. It'll find a way. Have any animals been de-extincted? Well, flora. Uh, there's a plant. Oh, yeah? <laughs> um, this is, and, and it's important to get away from the, the Fauna is always the interesting thing. The animals are always, because you know, we're an animal, so we think, okay, animals. Plants are where all the action is. They're 70 to 80% of the biomass of the Earth. They're the ones that are turning... Carbon thanks to sunlight, carbon dioxide into sugar, which is feeding all the rest of us. And um, the great plant of the whole eastern deciduous forest, from the Mississippi to the, to the Atlantic, from Canada down to the Gulf, the eastern deciduous forest had as one quarter of its trees the American chestnut tree, referred to as the perfect tree. Great, great wood. Uh, it's a beautiful tree. Uh, it, it's, it was called the redwood of the east. They got to be so enormous. And unlike oak trees, which make these nasty-tasting acorns whenever they feel like it, which is not very often, American chestnuts rain down these sweet nuts every year to where they pile up. And in the old days, farmers, you know, had the pigs out there, people were scooping them up, roasting them by the fire, making songs about it. American chestnut was in a really American plant. And shortly after 1900, uh, this is shortly after the last passenger pigeon died from the same forest, uh, a terrible blight, a fungus came from Asia and killed all the trees over a period of about 25 years. Four billion trees died, and no solution was found. And no solution has been found to that fungus. Until, and there's been attempts to backbreed it with the Chinese version of the chestnut and which seemed semi-resistant, but it wasn't really working. 
And then uh, one, uh, there's a whole following. of Fan clubs help any species. There's a huge fan club of American chestnuts. American Chestnut Foundation is a great organization. And the New York chapter of that got tired of nothing working with the national chapter, and so they hired local biotech guys at State University of New York. And at SUNY, they did classic genetic engineering the old way, which is just shoot the genes you want into the into the embryo and uh, see how it takes up. And they found, they did the research, what is, how is the fungus actually killing the tree? Uh, and they realized it was, that it was making a canker uh, that was creating oxalic acid that, that the fungus only eats dead wood, so it kills the wood and it eats and goes in. And once it, it completely circles the trunk of the tree, the tree's doomed. If they could head off that making of oxalic acid, they wouldn't care if the fungus was there. Well, it turns out lots of other plants actually do that, including wheat. So they've sought out what's the gene in wheat that does that. They took that gene, they put it into the American chestnut, went through several iterations of that, and they now have American chestnut trees that are growing. I saw them a couple of weeks ago uh, in New York. They're healthier against that fungus than the Chinese chestnut. This is a de-extinction in the sense that they were still growing out of the ground, but they couldn't get far because the fungus had always taken them down. So they don't get to make the nuts. They don't get to do the thing they used to be. So they're functionally extinct, ecologically extinct. But thanks to this, they now because it's a food plant, we are all going to eat these chestnuts. They're delicious. They're way better than the European chestnuts. And... To come back, they've got to go through the process of as if you know, it's just another crop, uh, only nobody owns it, and it isn't a question of we're worried about the genes getting released to the wild. The whole point is to release the genes to the wild. So it, it, there's some reconfiguring of the regulations to accommodate this, but the government wants it. Everybody wants these trees back, and they are coming back in this decade. Uh, and that the guy who's doing this, Bill Powell at SUNY, uh, has 20 people now on the staff cranking ahead. The chestnuts they bring back because they can backbreed them with these things that are growing out of the ground in various parts of the old uh, range of these plants, they will arrive back with plenty of genetic variability where they can do their own evolutionary workarounds for these various things, and they will rejoin this uh, seething that life is, is doing and feeding a whole lot of abundance of animals uh, in the forest as they come back. I hope that part of those will be passenger pigeons, which is another story. I think this is a perfect moment to turn it over to the crowd for questions um, and bring up Ryan Phelan, who is Stuart's partner in crime on Revive and Restore. More than partner. She runs Revive and Restore. I just cheerlead and dance around. (laughs) Uh, and for questions, wait till a mic gets to you. If you don't mind standing up, that would be great. Yes. Hi, thanks so much. So curious for your perspective on how you think about climate change and climate change adaptation, especially since, as you said, the time horizon for these projects is quite long. And since it looks like we are going to surpass, there is some likelihood we'll surpass four degrees Celsius. Um, how do you think about that in Restoring an animal like the mammoth, which is adapted to cold weather climates in the northern in North America. You do corals. Start with corals. Okay, I'm, I'm going to skip on the mammoth for one second. I'm Ryan, and I run Revive and Restore with Stuart. And um, and by the way, we have about 200 scientists around the world that are part of uh, loosely our genetic rescue advisory. Um, the one thing that you guys left off for, and you've done a beautiful interview, uh, is talking about. Uh, the rest of the world, not just the terrestrial part yeah. of the ocean. And we've recently been doing research on coral. And when you talk, ask the question about climate, um, as many of you have heard, there have been very dire projections around coral with the rising temperatures. And there are some uh, projections that we'll lose 90% of our coral by 2050 if we continue uh, to raise our temperatures. And there are a group of scientists, and and we're in the thick of trying to help steer uh, research in this area, who are looking for corals that are more tolerant to higher temperatures. So there are parts of the ocean and the reefs where they do well, and there are plenty of areas where the reef where they do very bad. 
And so the question is, like with the American chestnut tree, can you find a gene uh, in the case of the American chestnut tree, it was one transgene from wheat, but couldn't we find within these different corals uh, particular gene regions that will make them more tolerant to that stress and be able to withstand and continue to build reefs in the ecosystems that are so important? Uh, the mammoths and everybody else are... As climate change, as the warming continues, is the main event on terrestrial... In the, in the ocean, you've got both acidification and the warming, and the sea level rise. Um, creatures are on the move. They're on the move always anyway. The forest here, the mix of the forest in this part of the Front Range, is um, different than it was a few millennia ago. And it will, whether or not climate change is happening, it will be different eventually. Everything is, is always dealing with new problems and finding new opportunities. What's different, though, is that because uh, because of our global traffic around the world right now, we have species that um, are invasive and fungal pathogens like uh, the chestnut blight. But with uh, in Hawaii, the avian malaria mean, are most endangered forest birds, where because of climate change, the mosquitoes are moving up the mountain where it's warmer and warmer and they can prevail, and where the, where the forest birds can go no higher. They're at their mountaintop already. And so, you know, what we know is that we need to get rid of the mosquitoes that were already invasive to Hawaii. We should get rid of them and protect these birds, but the, click, the, t- the clock is clicking away, and there may not literally be enough time to save those birds. There are genetic ways to get rid of the mosquitoes, and there is a... Uh a whole initiative in, in way in the Hawaiian archipelago, archipelago uh, called Mosquito-Free Hawaii. And um, mosquitoes don't belong there. The, the malaria that they carry, the avian malaria, and the human diseases they carry don't belong there. And there's genetic workarounds now to have those mosquitoes just be gone from the islands. Let's go to you, and then we'll go to the other side of the room next. Yeah, thank goodness for the scientists who break down the political barriers between... <laughs> across our world. But um, I was just curious about the collaboration between, I would imagine you'd be collaborating with uh, China and Russia and the United States and Greenland, you know, for your mammoth project, how, how that all works, where the funding comes from and, and how collaborative that experience has been. Just starting. It's a really good question to raise. Conservation has been global for a while. Conservation International, World Wildlife Fund, etc. Um, biotechnology is patchy in that respect. There's parts of the world like Europe that are still very suspicious of genetic technology. Um, other parts of the world, possibly including China, that are uh, so eager to move that they're much more accommodating. And, and so it's going to be different in different places. But the technology... I mean, we're just following behind. We're drafting behind what's developing in medicine, which is where George Church and most of the biotechnologists are working, things that are good in terms of human health. And uh, we're just saying, hey, those same tools are good for ecological health. So I think as these become increasingly accepted for human health, and Ryan's been in the thick of that, uh, then we will then branch out at a planetary scale to include natural health. What's your perspective, Brian? Well, I, I wish that, that we could and, and expand the work that we're doing to scientists worldwide. We're, you know, just to uh, manage expectations, we're really a small nonprofit. And uh, we're five years in, and, um, you know, the funding is, um, you know, is still uh, de minimis compared to big-scale projects, but we help support the conversations with scientists worldwide and be funded, be able to actually help direct uh, intergovernmental scientific projects. That'd be, that'd be a dream come true. Hi. Uh, I'm wondering about your ethical limiting principles. Uh, put another way, is there anything you won't do? 
Well, Before he's you. thinking. I will just say there are plenty of things we wouldn't do. And um, one is, is that we're, we're, our organization is called Revive and Restore because it's really about ecological restoration. It's not about creating uh, curiosities for zoos. And there are, you know, um, there's a South Korean team that says, we're, you know, we want to bring back a, a woolly mammoth, and it's not about restoration. Um, so this project really is focused on ecology, and it's uh, very focused around animal safety and animal welfare. And so with that regard, we have advisors from, uh, you know, major zoos and uh, natural history museums and ethicists and um, a, a very significant board where we think about everything from the lab materials, the, the, the lab work that gets done with um, research animals. There's actually a document you can find online called De-Extinction Guidelines that um, we were involved in generating from the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. They're the Red List people. Uh, They saw this coming and they got very early involved, basically saying, what should the guidelines be for this field? And they realized the guidelines are mostly in place already for for reintroduction of species. And one of them is that you don't reintroduce or de-extinct a species for, for which there is not a welcoming environment. And so the, uh, the baiji, the river dolphin of the Yangtze in China, uh, died out because it is so bloody polluted. Well, until it's unpolluted, there's no point in bringing that species back to life. On the other hand, you might consider treating it as what's called an umbrella species, where the if the Chinese got motivated to do this, they would say, we want to clean up the Yangtze. And to prove that we're cleaning, that we're serious about this, we're starting the process of bringing back this beloved dolphin to our waters and uh, because lots of other richness will come back to the river along with it. And uh, we'll set in motion the bringing back the species, and we will set in motion cleaning up the Yangtze. That's classic umbrella species conservation biology, and it sort of makes sense. But absolutely don't do it if the, if the environment can't handle the animal. How about the person in the red hat? Genome of most species is very long and complicated. And I'm curious as to whether there is progress being made to be able to deal with the whole genome of a species in a way that is different from what is currently going on, which is isolating certain genes within the genome and then dealing with those. In other words, is computer technology uh, moving this along? Or I'm just, and this is a question. I just wonder if you have any insight as to what kind of progress is being made. Yeah, I'm, I'm the glib guy, so I always say, oh, yeah, we'll deal with that in mumble mumble. Uh, none of these things are single gene traits typically, they're polygenic. And so Ryan can take you down into the weeds of how tricky it is, but and, and yet how often effective it is to be dealing with genomes. How do you- um, I, I guess it also answer your question by saying the science is moving so rapidly. Mm-hmm. Our ability to sequence, the cost is plummeted. Um, and not only to uh, deal with the, the genome of a particular species, but what they're calling now the holobiome, the microbiome, all the different uh, proteomics, uh, metabolomics. And so it, it becomes almost fractal, the level of information that we're getting at a, at a species level. So for scientists thinking about making traits and changes, um, it, it certainly becomes more complex but um, I, I think that, in, in fact, it's starting to shed light on those particular gene regions that uh, you want to look at gene expression. So you're absolutely right that it's a much bigger picture. But, you know, typically, um, if we're trying to figure out how to make, and we are trying to figure out how to make black-footed ferrets resistant to sylvatic plague the way their cousins, the, uh, the domestic ferrets, are, well, you compare and contrast the, the two genomes, and you look in kind of tricky areas that have to do with disease, like histocompatibility complex. Are there differences in there? And then you can do some testing 
of you know, what makes antibodies that you care about in relation to this particular disease. And you do all of that in the lab. You're not dealing with animals at all yet, mature animals. And so most of this can get sorted out. The viability of the direction you're moving uh, is all there in the lab. And that can move pretty quickly. So you go down blind alleys, you know they're blind alley, and, and okay, that's then part of the data you've got, and you let all the other scientists know. One of the great things about this being a non-commercial area is there's no reason to try to, to protect information. Any advance that's being done with any of these wild species should be known by everybody right away. And that's one of the things we're very, very strongly encouraging. Pressing you both a little on ethical limiting principles, why not de-extinct a hominid? Does that exist on another side of an ethical frontier? And if not, why not? That will not be our organization. Because <laughs> um, <clears throat> you get into a, a, a wonderful tangle, and I would not be surprised if by the end of the century uh, there are some hybrid Neanderthals amongst us, and um, they will not be creatures for a zoo. They'll be creatures that are expecting you to go to college. Yeah, there is currently research, as you know, Jason, being done on, on that, um, and we're steering, steering clear of that one. How about the gentleman in the white? Uh, so, and there are Neanderthals walking the world right now, I think. But anyway, uh, back to the ethical question. Um, They're the smart ones. <laughs> we could debate that. <laughs> but... Um, you had a good, uh, good answer, a good positive answer on the Chinese River and the reintroduction of the dolphin. A negative scenario or an unintended consequence could be: uh, let's just take this species out for 30 years. For example, let's build a new coal-fired plant in southern Utah. It's going to wreak ecological havoc. You know, wipe out bird species, reptiles, what have you. And the policy could be: well, let's just set those species aside for 30 years and then reintroduce them after we've taking the coal or whatever it is we want to, you know, take out of the ground. So I just see a kind of a weird strategy that could, that's, I'm just kind of curious if you've thought about that. They refer to this as the, the moral hazard argument. Moral hazard. And uh, we understand it. And um, I think we answer it really all the time in two ways. First off, we're the, we're the ones to say bringing back a species is not easy. And it will always be very difficult to do. And so anything that you can do to protect the species in its current habitat, you need to do. But the second thing, really, um, that we like to give as an example, um, literally 40 years ago, the San Diego Zoo started something called the Frozen Zoo. And, and we work very closely with them. And they have cryopreserved thousands of species. I think it's something like 10,000 individual cell lines. And um, when they started that, they, they were criticized that they were going to make it too easy for people to, to question the Endangered Species Act even, to, to actually um, go ahead and you know, do that horrible ecological devastation. And um, what, what they found is they just persevered and said, we're going to you know, cryopreserve and protect. And they did. And um, that argument never really held up over those 40 years. No one has really ever questioned uh, letting species go. And today, um, the cell lines that we're going to be using for the Black-Footed Ferret Project, a project with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and San Diego Zoo, are two cell lines that are 40 years old that represent the equivalent of two new founders. And those black-footed ferrets went through that classic extinction vortex. They only had seven founders, and now every ferret is a kissing cousin um, and they're, they're at risk of, um, you know, of really losing the species. So we will be bringing back those two cell lines, those two individuals. What I find is that often when the moral hazard uh, argument comes up, it's sort of like the precautionary principle, uh, which often comes up and it's usually just a um, fancy way of saying no. Uh, you're doing something that's new. We don't know exactly how it'll work out. Uh, there's going to be moral hazard. And there's going to be a precautionary principle that needs to be brought to bear here. So just don't do it. And uh, or it's a very complicated field you're dealing with. Oh my God, you can't possibly understand it, and you mustn't engineer any system that you don't understand. Which is another variation. So what's of that. the how answer to, to that? No. Exactly the answer to that is, hey, we do not actually understand uh, human metabolism totally. 
but it does not slow us up in doing lots of medicine with it. And the way you deal with a complex system that you don't fully understand is you tweak it in a very rigorous way. Where you tweak it here and you see what fans out in terms of consequences. If they look to be harmful, you don't do that anymore. If they look to be beneficial, you maybe do a little more of it. That's how you constantly find out how climate works, how human metabolism works, uh, and how these ecosystems work. Meddling is what humans do. <laughs> Meddling is what nature does with itself all the time. That's what coevolution is actually made of. We are always constantly negotiating, like the matriarchs of these uh, herds of elephants. They're constantly negotiating who's on first, how do we deal with this? And a lot of elephant communication, a lot of dolphin communication, it turns out everybody's negotiating all the time. Well, it's happening at all these levels. So the kind of research we're talking about is, in a sense, joining this vast negotiating conversation that nature is carrying on with itself and that we're joining, we're learning its language, and we're making our statements, and then that's playing or not playing in that conversation, and that's how we're moving forward. And so I think the ethical arguments should be borne in mind all along the way, but they they only really have, really have effect when you're getting some feedback from the world, from this conversation with the world, to tell you, are we on the right track? Is this going to have uh, benefits, or is it going to have harms that might spread out in a bad way that you would really regret. The discourse has got to be not just with us, but with the world for it to work. I think that is the perfect place to leave it. Thank you both so much, and thank you to everyone for the great questions. Stuart Brand is a trained biologist who co-founded Revive and Restore. He's president of the Long Now Foundation, where Revive and Restore began. He also founded the Whole Earth Catalog and has written several books. Ryan Phelan is co-founder and executive director of Revive and Restore. And Flora Lichtman is a science writer and hosts Gimlet Media's Every Little Thing podcast. Their conversation happened at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June of 2018. The 2019 festival is right around the corner and passes are still available. To get yours, head to aspenideas.org register. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show is produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keeleen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.